You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hello, it's your friend Lisa Birnbach here, still in my perch, excited about today's show. I want to say that I had a day that was so lazy. I feel like I have to confess this. It was just so lazy. It was last Sunday. It was raining in New York. I did go to the gym for an hour, but then I was a sloth. And I felt really badly about it. And I felt sort of guilty that I had no ambition for the day, but also kind of thrilled that I had no plans also. And I read a book and then I finished a book and then I started a new book and then I took a nap, which I never, ever, ever do. Anyway, it was kind of indulgent. But you know what? Sometimes you need just blah to recharge. I like to think of myself as one of those wristwatches that winds itself by being worn and in motion. But really, maybe I'm just like a watch that needs to run down all the way and then get rewound. I don't know. But before I start getting carried away with my own confidences, you should know that this week's guest is Adrian Broder, who has written one of the great memoirs of recent memory. It's called Wild Game, subtitled My Mother, Her Lover, and Me. Really, it's sexy and crazy and good. Read it before the movie is made. Adrian's favorite place on earth is Cape Cod, and most of her five things take place there. But Let's talk about me, shall we? My five things. And here we go. Number one. When the weather was beautiful last Saturday, I went to my high school reunion. And I had so much fun. I only attended my school, Riverdale Country School, for three years. And there was a time when I was shunned. I was framed for something I didn't do. And then nobody would talk to me. And that part was bad. But Otherwise, I loved everything about Riverdale. I loved my time there after nine years at a small girls' school with an average grade size of 19. My new school seemed so all-American. Well, it helped that there were boys there and big, and I think there were 90 in my grade. I mean, it was huge, and it was sporty, and it was smart. Anyway, every five years, we have our reunion, and I go. There are people who've never been which I find kind of odd. There are people who come every now and again. I ran into one classmate who said he hadn't been back since we graduated. I said, well, where do you live? He lives about 20 minutes from the campus, crazy. But also going, I feel like a 16-year-old amongst 14-year-olds, you know? Some of the people in my class are still not that mature. Number two electric tea kettle. I just bought one. And now I'm asking myself, why did I wait so long to buy myself an electric tea kettle? I don't drink tea all that much, but I certainly drink at least a cup a week. Now, for a cup a week, you know, the thing on my stove is fine. But here's what I hate. I hate that piercing noise that the whistle makes. I hate that. And it usually seems to take a long time. And by the time that whistle is shrieking in my head, I've already moved on. I don't even want my tea anymore. So the electric tea kettle, swift, silent. My God, it's like an upgrade. Number three. 
though I love my old friends and feel a kind of commitment to them, does that make sense? That I don't have to people I don't know as long or whose parents I didn't know or whose original noses I didn't know, whatever. I like my new friends too. And some of them are surprises to me. And it's so cool when you have a friend that you've met when you're a fully developed human and you think your life is sort of a closed circle and a new person comes in and that's fine. That's what I wanted to say. Number four, multiple pairs of reading glasses. I cannot have just one pair because what if I leave them somewhere? Very possible. What if someone borrows them and doesn't return them? Also possible. What if I left them on the counter at the drugstore, left them in the taxi, left them wherever I was? It's so likely it's going to happen. So I now have multiple pairs, and they're in different rooms. I have a pair now on my desk. I have a pair on my night table. Some of them are really crummy drugstore ones. I got a pair yesterday at the hardware store that are bad, but they work. And I have a pair that was made for me. So, and iBobs. Any of you wear iBobs? I love iBobs. They're in the $80 range, but they're, they're well-made, and the lenses are finer than what you can buy at a drugstore. Anyway. The secret to life is having multiples. Number five, The Peanuts Papers, a new anthology about Charlie Brown and his friends and frenemies that is being published this very week. I contributed an essay to it, and I'm very pleased to be in such company as Ann Patchett and George Saunders and Jonathan Lethem and Jonathan Franzen and all the Jonathans and all the literary types and Jennifer Finney Boylan and so on. I'll be devoting a future episode to it. You can read an excerpt from my piece here on my website as it was abridged for Shondaland.com. Coming up, Adrian Broder. Today's guest, Adrian Broder, has written what has got to be the memoir of the year. It's a sensational, honest, riveting, sexy, disturbing, wonderful memoir called Wild Game. The subtitle is My Mother, Her Lover, and Me. And this is a book you're going to hear about and hear about and hear about and want to read, and then you're going to want to see the movie, and then you're going to want to read it again. Adrian, what a phenomenal achievement. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me and for that lovely introduction. Do you like me yet? I love you. Okay. I love you too. (laughs) And happy birthday. Thank you. Um, Adrian, your story, very simply, is of a girl who is so invested in her mother's happiness, in being her mother's friend and confidant that she loses sight of a mother without boundaries and you you become a, a, an accomplice in a bad, unhealthy, unfair relationship that your mother has with her lover. That is absolutely spot on, yes. <laughs> when did you know you could or must write it? That's a great question. I mean, honestly, some part of me, I think 
was writing it my entire life. Almost, I mean, starting the night of the affair, I started writing in my journal in a whole new way, starting the night of the kiss that began the affair. Um, But truthfully, it was when I started a family and I realized that this legacy of secrets and deception, you know, that didn't just start with my mother's generation. There were her parents and so on. I just was determined to end it in my own life. And in order to do that well, I had to just face it straightforwardly in memoir. This couldn't be fiction. This couldn't be a romantic comedy, which it also considered. You know, this had to be exactly the truth. It's something I've always wanted to ask people who have very, very big secrets Mm -hmm. that they reveal. Katherine Harrison, I've never met. So I can't ask her. So I must ask you, at a certain point, you had the journal, you experienced catharsis as you grew up and got healthier and departed from your mother's web a little Mm -hmm. bit, although you still have a beautiful relationship with her. But there is a point at which writing it and putting it in a drawer is also a cathartic thing as opposed to sharing it with the world. Now... You write so well that I can understand, and your background is in publishing, that you would feel that it was more of a a statement by publishing it. But was there a point at which you thought, I just need to write it as a finished work and then put it away? The good has been done? That's so interesting. Um, the truth is, I never thought about leaving it in a drawer. Um You know, I'm a writer, and I wrote it not with some idea of some huge readership that would follow me. I mean, when I started writing this, I was alone in in a very small office writing at 5 a.m. till my kids woke up at 7. So it wasn't like I had some big vision for it. But um, I think most people who write write to get published and write to put their story out there. And I think this is the kind of story that it's my hope anyway that other people with very complicated paths will actually take solace from. Because I think, you know, we all sort of go through life, those of us who've had very complicated paths, go through life with these blinders on, just one foot in front of the other, we'll get through, we'll be good people, we'll do things differently, and so on. But the fact is, if you want to make real change, I think you have to examine it carefully and be with it and sit with it and own it. And that's the real way to move Beyond, But I also, having been in publishing for so long, I benefited so much from other people's stories, from empathizing with characters going through different situations. Um, So, no, I I didn't feel like I needed to hide it. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's there's the the idea of your complicity. And, you know, you unpack your guilt throughout the pages of Wild Game and you, I guess... You want to sh- it, it 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 proves your sincerity. I mean, when I quit smoking, bad bad analogy. <laughs> I told people I'm not yeah. smoking anymore, so that in case I cheated, somebody would right. rein me back in. And I guess by going, I mean, I understand as a yeah. writer, of course, the whole idea is to be published and to also be forgetting the story. Be a wonderful stylist. Be a good writer. Oh. Be able to find a means of expression that is both satisfying to you and to the reader. Right. I think, um, 
you know, there's just sort of... I think it's so important in memoir to be as hard on yourself as you are on anyone else. And all the memoirs I have loved the most are memoirs in which I trust the author not to settle some score and not to um, make themselves sound innocent. And there was a line that I read in a Vivian Gornick book, which I just love, The Situation and the Story, which is a book about sort of, it's a bit of a how-to book on um, personal narrative. And the line, and I hope I don't botch it, is something to the effect of, in order for the drama to deepen, you must show the loneliness of the monster and the cunning of the innocent. And I had that taped to my computer screen. And that was actually the most interesting part of, you know, the journey for me. Um, you know, it's it, obviously my mother did something very boundaryless and wrong in waking me up and telling me. She was also great in her own way, but like this is this was a, a poor moment, dubious maternal <laughs> decision making <laughs> uh-huh. at the very least. Uh-huh. But what I was really curious about is why, at these various moments along the way, why did I lean in when I could have leaned out? What what was I doing there? And that's what I wanted to study and explore, and put an end to. Well, you weren't a monster, first of all. You were 14. And maybe this would be a good time for you to read that excerpt from Wild Game. Okay. Wake up, Rennie. Rennie's my nickname, by the way. I felt a hand on my shoulder and pulled the sheet over my head. Rennie, please. Even before I turned and saw her face... I could hear a peculiar quaver in my mother's whisper and smell the remnants of the Pinot Noir. Her voice sounded hesitant and desperate. The mattress sank where she lowered herself beside me, and my body stiffened against the depression. I kept my eyes shut and steadied my exhalations. Rennie! The whisper, more urgent now, still held an unfamiliar tremor. She pulled down the sheet. Please, wake up. At this, I opened my eyes. Malabar was in her nightgown. Her hair must. I sat up. Mom, what's wrong? Is everything okay? Ben Souther just kissed me. I took in this information, tried to make sense of it, couldn't. I rubbed my eyes. My mother was still there beside me. Ben kissed me, my mother repeated. A noun, a verb, an object. Such a simple sentence, really, and yet I couldn't comprehend it. Why would Ben Souther kiss my mother? It wasn't that I was naive. I knew that people kissed people they weren't supposed to. My parents had not shielded me from stories of both their transgressions during their marriage, and in this way I knew more about infidelity than most children. I was four when my parents broke up, six when my father remarried, seven when my... When that new marriage started to fall apart, and eight when my mother was finally able to wed Charles, who'd been separated from but still married to his first wife when they met. Ben was married, too, of course, to Lily. The Southers had been married for 35 years. Mom and Charles, Ben and Lily. The four of them had been couple friends for as long as my mother and stepfather had known each other, about a decade now. What do you mean, Ben kissed you? Suddenly, I was fully awake. I pictured her slapping him in response. That was something my mother might do. What happened? 
We took a walk after dinner, just the two of us, and he pulled me into him like this. My mother crossed her arms around herself, simultaneously demonstrating Ben's caress and embracing its memory. Then she collapsed the rest of the way onto the bed, smiling, and stretched out alongside me. Apparently, there had been no slap. I still can't believe Ben Souther kissed me, she said. What was it about her voice tonight? He kissed me, Rennie. There it was again. Joy. A tone I hadn't heard from her since before Charles's strokes. Joy had fallen from the night sky and landed in my mother's voice. One kiss, the gleam and shine of it, what it might portend, had changed everything. That is so beautifully written. Oh, my. So as a 14-year-old girl, your mother wakes you up and not slapping this man, and you were eventually thrilled to be her partner in crime or her accomplice. I mean, I was thrilled pretty much from the moment I was tapped in that way that I was in my mother's thrall. She was this incredibly charismatic woman. And I think like most children, you know, we want to, you know, get our parents full love and attention. And honestly, her her high beams were just right shining on me. (laughs) And you also had a lot of empathy for her because, as you said, your stepfather had had a stroke. Her previous marriage to your dad had ended, but but you're almost like her friend now. You're not like her kid. And tragically, there was an, uh, a firstborn who died uh, mm. before you and your older brother were born. So you felt that this was a compensation for your mother's pain in a way, this joy. Well, I don't think I was as sophisticated as putting it all together then, but what I will say is my mother had always seemed depressed to me and sad, even as she sort of had a fabulous life, and suddenly she was just happy, and that is something you want of your parents as a child. It is. Now, meanwhile, your life goes through unbelievable changes. You and your brother move from New York, where you and your parents lived together, to living in New York in in two separate homes, mm-hmm. to moving to a, a, an estate outside of Boston. Mm-hmm. And now you've, you, I guess the good news is you have this huge house and <laughs> and a nice stepfather. The bad news is you've left your friends behind. You've left your life behind. You've left the doorman or the or the teachers that you like, and now you're you're doing that. And then you're, you know, you really you really seem like very uncomplaining children when it comes to the kind of um, uh, impositions that your parents both put you through. I you mean, know, today's never, kids. No, it, today's but, kids would say, "Come on, I don't want to move." Totally right. Uh, we grew up in a different time, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, but I really think it never occurred to me to challenge them. Like my mother was getting married to someone. We were moving to another state. I didn't, you know, kids in the '60s and '70s. I mean, I was born in '65, so uh, this move took place in the '70s, and. 
you know, I just didn't have the agency to say that. Um, and now, of course, you know, there are these much more sort of artfully arranged divorces with nesting and so on. I mean, that wasn't done at the time. Right. You know, people wait to introduce lovers. And I mean, I just was meeting, you know, girlfriends and boyfriends and whatnot. It was, it was, you know, in hindsight, it was very chaotic, but it never occurred to me that I had a voice to say, no, 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 this is not probably good for my emotional health. Can right. we please? <laughs> and, and because you're, you're rigorously uh, uh, tough on yourself, you go along as your mom's um, aide d'affaire, mm-hmm. as you would say, um, and don't really question it, although you feel badly for your stepfather because he's a nice man and he's a wonderful stepfather and he adores your mother and he's unaware of this betrayal. But you really don't take the hard look at what you've been up to until you meet this very inappropriate guy in your gap year between high school and college, right? Right. Well, and just to step back to something you said, um, it seemed entirely normal to me in that way that you only get one parent. And, and also, I mean, I just assumed this was how adults behaved. My mother had a secret half-brother because her father had had affairs and had a whole other family. Her mother had had an affair. Um, you know, my stepfather, who I adored, he and my mother were both married when they met. So it wasn't right. like there were all these good and noble, I mean, right. people, right. upstanding and citizens. People, This is what I understood. But they were also upstanding citizens who maybe had um, sloppy yes. emotional lives. And so that was normal to you, but the yes. way any normal, whatever any kid has is normal. So, yeah. So to my the point only being like, I really didn't realize anything was particularly amiss at right. this point in time. So your 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 question asks of this time when I took a gap year between high school and college, and I really, I don't think I understood that I was trying to escape this, but I was. It was a time when I was really, I think, in hindsight, suffering a lot. I had, um, you know, just terrible stomach aches all the time. I was really anxious all the time. So I took this gap year. I went off to Hawaii to live this freewheeling life. And I fell in love for the first time with, yes, you say inappropriate. I mean, lovely guy, so inappropriate. Basically, high school dropout, small-time drug dealer, you know, just, you know, a drifter. A dreamboat. A oh, dreamboat. I mean drifter. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but one day he asked me, he just asked me point blank, like, what are you escaping from? Like, I'm here for this and this and this. And I, I was just like, What? And then I I told him the story, and he was the first person who was like, "Good God, you yes. know that is just unreprehensible." And I uh, I just couldn't understand what he was talking about. I thought I'd misrepresented things. I felt so badly that he didn't understand that my mother was a great person. And but like seeing it even for a nanosecond through his eyes was probably the first time I was like, "Oh wow!" Like if this person thinks this is awful, right? What? But, you know, denial goes a long way. Denial does go a long and, way and compartmentalizing because you're yes. in Hawaii. And then and then you never told a friend before that boyfriend about your mom's. No, um, I mean, I, I guess I there told, was a fear that you could contribute to the demise of the affair. If you told anybody, they'd get found out. I mean, 
There were a lot of people that I wished I told, and I did confide in a few people, certainly. Nothing to the degree that I confided in that boyfriend, but I, you know, I would talk to some friends about it. I mean, probably at that point, only one. Um, But I was always terrified. I was always really terrified of, of being the person who blew it. Can you imagine that here is a teenager, 14, 15, 16? I mean, that's a young person who is holding the secret and also enabling her mother, giving her excuses and cover to see her lover. And all this time, your brother didn't know, but your brother noticed that you and your mom were closer than he and your mother. Yeah, I think it was... um a very hurtful thing that happened to him. I think he, you know, we'd been a close little trio, and suddenly he was on the outs, and he didn't know why. And, um, you know, he was older than I was, and his life was sort of starting to progress, and he was off doing other things. And, you know, this is my book, and this is my story of this secret. I mean, obviously, it wasn't the one and only secret that happened in our lives. So, you know, my brother had some, I had some, I think we were all holding different pieces. um, But it certainly didn't breed a closeness between us. Right, right, right. I mean, that's part of the bravery of this book is that you, you even unpack that somewhat Mm -hmm. about how your brother and you were a little bit competitive for Malabar, your mother's attention, because she was mercurial and she was exotic and she was exciting. And to have her attention felt like the sun warming you. Absolutely. I got that. I really got that from the book. Um, Then, as if things weren't complicated enough, okay, I'm just going to say it. You met your mother's lover's son, who is quite a bit older and very good looking. And gulp, you fell in love with him. And he fell in love with you. We did indeed. (laughs) And then, reader, listener, they got married right around the time that Ben told his wife about the affair. The affair that you thought would never be spoken about, that you were worried that your stepfather found out about it before he died. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he did. I believe so, yes. We believe so. But I also think he denied it and and tried not to believe it. Right. But then, okay, the guilt, the, the, I just can't even um, really understand how you were so strong and functional. You actually got married. You went through with it with the two women not speaking to one another with your mother-in-law now telling you and your father-in-law and your husband that she would not, that her, that Ben was not allowed to dance with your mother at the wedding. They wouldn't speak at the wedding. Yet you still had, in that good waspy New England way, the good manners to pose for pictures and celebrate a wedding together. Yeah, I have to say that um, Ben's wife, Lily, in the book, was incredible in that, um, you know, she, was, she, she wasn't going to ruin the day for us. She was really going to stand by. She knew that we loved each other. I'm sure she understood far more than I could at the, at the time. I'm sure she understood 
some of the manipulation that I wasn't able to see at that point in my life. Um, but the particular night you're talking about, which took place before we before got married, the wedding. Yeah. you know, I, I just, I can't even imagine what she must have been feeling at that time, her son about to marry the daughter of someone she thought was a friend and whom her her husband had had an affair with for over 10 years at this point in time. And her, had betrayed her. Yes, absolutely. And she was a lady and went through it and... And it's funny, it was also this really eye-opening moment for me because before that point, I had seen Lily, who would become my mother-in-law, only through the eyes of my mother. And of course, my mother just was not a big fan, even though, you know, through no fault of Lily's, just because this was her competition. So I'd always seen her as this like, oh, Lily, you know, so boring, so this, so that. And suddenly I am met and I like... The lenses have cleared, and I see this intelligent, fierce, formidable woman who is just laying down the law. And who you could, who you loved before, yes, as your Mm -hmm. as your parents' friend, Mm -hmm. and who, yeah, you had to give her some props, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, that part of the story is just powerful and heartbreaking, but also it, it speaks to the power of women and it speaks to the power of denial which is not always a bad thing it sort of can help the locomotion go right doesn't it i mean do you feel that you were manipulated into that relationship with ben and lily's son or do you think that actually had its own steam would it have ever happened had that affair not been happening, I truly doubt. That said, when I met Jack, no part of me was thinking, oh, this is a way I can please my mother. I'll just faux fall in love. I absolutely fell in love with this man. He is a great guy. Um, He's a lovely man, and we had some nice years together. It's crazy that I got married. I was 23. I'd never... I wasn't marriage-minded. I mean, so... It's such a complicated web. I I couldn't tell you where what part of those pieces were from my own agency or from having spent ten years sort of in this bizarre Byzantine um, crazy land, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, right, because you were basically all this time your mom's bridesmaid, even <laughs> before. It was, yeah. Yes, you were. You were that. You were that friend. You were the. You were the. Yep. She came first. Second lead. Yep. In your own life. I know, and I think it's sort of hilarious that even in the memoir, I mean, people find her the most fascinating character, which she is, no. and I'm okay with it. No, <laughs> she's. She, well, I no. Yeah. Okay. I, I, actually, for me, it's you. Thank it, you. It's you, uh, and it it really is. Um, an extraordinary book. The The memories just feel very visceral and very close to the surface and very real. And um, for some reason, I, I not only do, as a, as a mother of, of children, I, I definitely relate to the child telling the story and right. experiencing the story. I guess it would be remiss for me not to say that 
eventually your mother has the happy ending she always wanted, but of course at great, great cost. But you have forgiven her, I know. Mm -hmm. Have you forgiven yourself? I have forgiven both of us. Um, You know, and I I don't want to make that sound easy or light or a simple thing. My mother and I went through some very difficult patches, periods of estrangement. Um, And what what I think I should say is a little bit about how I feel about forgiveness, which is that I think forgiveness doesn't have to be sort of this thing done to sort of hand down from on high. I mean, I think I've forgiven both of us because it's empowering to do so. It's it's really letting go. And I wasn't trying to forgive her to sort of blanket over these transgressions and what had happened. In a lot of ways, obviously, this book, I'm underlining them. Um, but it enabled me to move on. And I think the other you know, the other way, which I talked about a little bit before, is, you know, when you are doing, when you are really looking at someone's life as carefully as I ended up looking at my mother's life, I don't think you can actually, I think there are very few people who, when you know their story fully, you can't forgive or love. And um, my mother's no exception. Right, right. Well, I think it's going to be an interesting fall for you because, obviously, the book is just out and you are going on tour and people are going to want to meet you and talk to you and tell you their secrets. And you're going to be reliving a lot of this book for success has a long shelf life, you know? (laughs) And I think it's, it's going to be so interesting for you to see how other people are helped by wild game and, um, and uh, don't do the wild game cookbook now (laughs) or the wild cookbook, my, just my advice or the wild cookbook date daytime calendar or anything. I, think, I, will, I will follow that advice. Uh, yeah. my, my fear on tour is that I might be getting a lot of, you know, venison steaks and power packs. So. Yeah, power <laughs> packs, exactly. Now, one last thing. It is being made into a, a film? That is my understanding, yes. Um, Chernin Productions picked up the rights right away after the book sold, um, which I initially found terrifying. Um, but I've been working with this brilliant writer-director named Kelly Freeman Craig, and she totally gets it. Like, she gets the nuance. She gets everything I was hoping for her to get. And she has a huge job because, of course, she's going to compress time and geography. And in that way, I I did read a draft of the script. It's just, um, it holds the truth of the story without actually feeling like it's entirely my life. So that that's a huge relief. That's perfect. <laughs> it is perfect. Oh, my gosh. Well, that is fantastic. Um, I can't recommend Wild Game enough. I hope you all read it. And now, really, I, I, I that sounds glib. It's just an important memoir, and it's a day that you will give to reading this book that you will be grateful that you did, I think. I, I dare you to put it down and and before you finish it. Um, Adrian, Rennie, are you still called Rennie? I'm, I go equally by both names. <laughs> Adrian, I don't know you well enough. Well, I do. I read the book. I know you, but no. Um, tell us your five great things that help you get through 
life. Number one. Okay. Well, I will preface this by saying that um, I'm at a point in my life where I treasure peace and quiet more than than lots of excitement. So number one is a strong cup of coffee, which is the only one that counts as excitement on the list. <laughs> number two is a sunrise over Nauset Harbor, which I get to see on Cape Cod. And because I started waking up so early to write this book, I have just gotten in the habit of looking at them every single morning I can. Do you still live in your mom's house? No, there's a guest house, a guest cottage next door. And so my family and I have been there for about 15 years. So so all the memories are right there. It's right there. <laughs> um, number three is I love to go beachcombing for sea glass with my family, especially my children. Um, and we collect these pieces and we make up stories from how they got tossed off the ships. And number four, which um, my children are embarrassed by, but I love whale songs. And that was, in fact, what I listened to to put me in the head to write this book. I would <laughs> get up and put whale songs on very softly <laughs> in the background and my son would come out and just be like, oh. <laughs> um, and then the fifth and final is I love to sleep outside. I don't get to do it too often, um, but on there's certain periods in the Cape where it's cold enough that there are not the bugs. And my husband and I go out and have a blow-up mattress and we lie out on our deck and just the stars, the shooting stars, it is magical. Lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Adrian Broder, executive director at Aspen Words and author of the new memoir, Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You can follow Adrian on Instagram at Adrian Broder or at her website at adrianbroder.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, YouTube, and iHeartRadio. And please, if you do like it, then rate it. Tell the world. Also, did you notice that iHeartRadio and Google Play Music are kind of sentences? Anyway, my blog is at lisabernbach.com where you'll find links and photos to all the things we spoke about. And this podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. My team is Espresso Rucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, stay cool and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. <laughs>